Uh, let's stand. We're going to read uh, from Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, again, we provide copies uh, in, the, in the seats around you. There may not be one in every chair, uh, but, but somewhere around you there may be a Bible. And uh, the, today's text begins on page 820. Um, and goes over into 821, and our brother Brian is going to come and read Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. Matthew 15, 1 through 9, um, as we uh, read in the scriptures together. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your scribes break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy, prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Um, thank you that as we'll see today, uh, that, that uh, no word supersedes your word, um, that your word is, is uh, completely sufficient um, that, that that which God has spoken um, in his word to us um, and that which we have heard and seen from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, um, is, is your authoritative word. Um, and so, Lord, help us to see that today. Help us to submit ourselves to it. Um, help us to, to see plainly your word um, and plainly what, what your word says. Uh, Lord, there may be things today um, in your word that confront us. Um, and so, would we not be resistant to that? Uh, rather, would uh, your spirit, um, as your word says that he does, would your spirit convict us? Um, would he change us, transform us, um, and continue doing the work uh, within us that, that you have begun um, so that one day it will be finished um, in us, that that which you have started, um, that you will complete in us. Um, and so, we thank you that you are changing us and transforming us, and uh, Lord, we pray today um, that, that this small uh, bite from your word uh, would, would be uh, part of what sustains us um, through, through this, this process that you are growing us. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen, amen. You may have a seat. It is wonderful to see you today, and uh, today's text is one of those that, uh, you know, you, you come across and... Uh, you, you, just, you, you just go through, and you walk through it, and uh, looking really forward to that. And so as we do each Sunday, I'm going to ask for a lot of uh, kind of group participation. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge particularly my brothers in Christ. Sisters, you are obviously also welcome, but, but when I ask for a verse to be read, that you would read it, that you would read it with clarity, with good volume, and uh, so, that, so that we may be built up by God's Word. And so um, we're, we're going to get to that, but... I want to start by telling a little bit of a story that happened actually yesterday. Um, I went to the home. There's actually a picture of it. I went to, to the home of one of our Afghan neighbors. He hosted this really large gathering. Um, and, and the four folks up at the top work with a, a local organization uh, that works with, with Muslims in particular, 
with our Muslim neighbors, not just Afghans, but, but Muslims in general. And it just so happened that the one who was asked to host it is one of my good friends. Um, and he, he just said, hey, I'm the host. I can do whatever I want. You come. And so I was one of the only ones who showed up in my Afghan suit uh, and, and looked like a silly. They loved it, uh, but, but looked, like, looked real silly. And, uh, but, but what this meeting was about yesterday um, there, there was, there was, I think there was about 16, 16 of these men there, and they had gathered to meet with the leadership of this organization uh, here, here in the city to discuss ways that the community, uh, the, the Muslim community, could be better served, uh, is, what, is, is what the purpose of the meeting was. I did not know what the purpose of the meeting was. I was invited for lunch, um, and obviously not a party, uh, like a dress party, like I thought it was. Um, but... But there were these four leaders from this local organization. They were there, and I mean, as is usual with our Afghan neighbors, the red carpet was absolutely rolled out. As you can see, normally this living room has toys and couches, and the night before, uh, my, my, my friend whose house this is, they cleared out, all, they cleared out the whole thing so that they could, they, they could stack this thing for this, for this meal. And so one of, the, one of the Afghan men in this room are, is, is recognized among the Afghan community. Some of you have met him. Some of you know him. Uh, one of these men is recognized in the Afghan community as, as really just kind of their leader, uh, the leader of the whole Afghan community here in the city. Um, and he's very influential among these neighbors of ours. Um, he's, he's very influential there. And so for a while, this man, he speaks great English, for a while this man went back and forth uh, translating between these other men and these four leaders and, and really spoke on behalf of them uh, throughout the whole meeting. And right about the time that it seemed like these four leaders were, were about to go, um, and, and pack things up and we're preparing to leave, this, 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 this one man started to share what seemed to be a recurring theme um, in, the, in the issues that the other men were sharing. And this was the, the issue that kept coming up. They wanted to be educated in the Quran. Uh, you, you had all these devout Muslim men who wanted to be educated in, in, in to them, what is their holy book. Um, and in my notes here, I have holy book as small letters, not capital letters, but in in, in their mind, what their holy book is, and they wanted to be educated in that. Now, they weren't just talking about education for their kids. They were talking about education for themselves. Um, and, and, and in what felt like a very humble and vulnerable way, I will give, I will give them that. These are, these are all good friends of mine. Um, and, and, and in what felt like a very humble and vulnerable way, he shared that in Afghanistan, there were, there were plenty of religious leaders uh, that, that, that the common folk had access to um, that could essentially tell men what the Quran meant, and even what it said, uh, because many of these men cannot read. Many of these men, if they can read, don't understand what it's saying. Um, and so <clears throat> they, they just talk about the access that they had in Afghanistan, and, and since getting pulled out of Afghanistan a few years ago, uh, that, that really there's no access to, to these kinds of leaders here. There may be a couple of, of really significant Muslim leaders here in our city, uh, but, but, but what they said was uh, they, they really wanted to understand what their holy book meant. They wanted to understand how to apply certain things. Um, and, and the interesting thing is that no one in the entire room had the ability to give these men what they were looking for. Nobody in the room, not even the leader, not, not this app, this, this, seriously, if you, if, you say, if you say this guy's name, I'm not sure what's going on, I'm probably just going to unplug this, Woo. If, you, if you say this guy's name, um, he, is, he is very much recognized. And not even he, he's the one speaking on behalf of and he's admitting, again, somewhat humbly, we need someone to help us understand what this means. We need someone to help us understand how to apply this. Uh, 
and, and no one could help them. And so they were essentially asking these organizational leaders to, to find someone in the Muslim community who, who, who could educate them, who could help them interpret and apply, uh, apply their beliefs. Now, now, let me be really clear just as a Christian, as a believer here, as, as, a, as a church, um, we, we need to be clear lest we, lest we uh, not allow the Lord to keep us humble, uh, that, that we too are utterly dependent upon something outside of ourselves to understand things. Amen? Uh, that, that we in and of ourselves don't provide all the answers, that we in and of ourselves don't, don't have all of the answers, but that we are utterly dependent upon someone else outside of us to help us understand. To be specific, that's the Holy Spirit. But to, but to go even further, I would, I would say that we all even need one another to help better understand and apply God's Word, right? Uh, if, if you are of the phase of life where you think you are done growing, um, then you have just told everyone that you are not done growing uh, by, by that posture. Um, and so we are continual learners. We are lifelong learners, lifelong disciples. What, one way that we have said it before is discipleship is not a destination, it's a direction. It's a direction in which we move more and more towards Christ-likeness that continues to go until we die and we are glorified, right? Um, and so we too need this. Uh, we, are, we need teachers. Uh, we, need, we are learners and disciples, but, but when it comes to God's word and God himself being accessible and revealed, my mind went back to, to Jeremiah chapter 31. Somebody turn there for me. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, uh, verses 33 and 34. I need somebody to read that real loud for us. Uh, 33 and 34 of Jeremiah 31. And as we read this, keep in mind, again, when it, when it, the, the, the idea of God's word and God himself being accessible and, re, and revealed to us. Uh, this is something that God promises in, in the Old Testament that, by the way, Hebrews chapter 8 says has been fulfilled in the new covenant uh, that we as believers experience today. And so someone read for me those two verses. That's a beautiful promise, isn't it? Uh, one that, that now all of us experience as believers, as new covenant people, uh, that, that we know the Lord, each of us as, as redeemed people, that we know the Lord. And the Lord has told us no longer am I fully dependent on someone else telling me what the word means, <clears throat> but that you yourself as an ordinary person, mom, dad, single person, widow, widower, whatever that may be, that you can approach the scriptures and that you can know who God is. Um, which, again, is the purpose of theology, really. The purpose of reading the Bible is what? To know God, um, not just to fill our minds. Um, and so that's a, a beautiful promise that, again, Hebrews chapter 8 says uh, that, we, that we is now true of us. It quotes, actually, this very passage in, in Hebrews chapter 8. So I, I want us to understand a similar context in which the characters of today's text find themselves as what I experienced yesterday. Um, in somewhat of a similar context, 
The, the, the world in which this exchange in Matthew chapter 15, the world in which this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees was not too dissimilar to what I witnessed yesterday. Uh, they, the, the, the common folk needed someone desperately to help them understand what God's will and God's law said. And, and in today's text, we will see that these leaders in text, Matthew 15, that these leaders responsible for stewarding God's word were false teachers and they were guilty of what Jesus in just a few chapters will say are tying up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and to lay them on people's shoulders. Those who had been called to, to help people understand God's word, Jesus later says, here's what, here's what you've done instead. You've tied up burdens that are way too heavy for people to, to bear. And I think this is one of those examples in our text today. Uh, let's look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. By the way, it says from Jerusalem. Uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily show us this in this text, but it seems like, all right, if there's like a head honcho scribe of Pharisees, they're probably in Jerusalem, right? Um, and so you've got these strong leaders from Jerusalem from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So at first glance, it seems that these religious leaders take very seriously the word of God, right? It seems that these, these religious leaders, when I read this, I, I thought, man, these guys are so serious about God's word that they got to make sure that there's a whole lot stacked up on top of it. However, uh, if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, Jesus actually exposes these men, not because they take the word too seriously, but because they're actually not taking the word seriously enough. And so maybe it's easy to see, well, these people took these, these Scriptures very seriously, and so they kind of piled up all these. But what that's going to show us, Jesus will say, is, no, you're actually not taking the, the word of God, what God has commanded, what God has laid out in his law, you're not taking that seriously enough, and you're taking yourself more seriously than what God has said and laid out for us to do. And so it's, it's, it's hard to commend these leaders for some kind of virtue for being serious about God because Jesus doesn't do that, not in this text. He doesn't, he doesn't commend them for, for, this, for, this, uh, for this virtue, but it's also hard to, if, if we want to remain humble, it's also hard to condemn them um, lest we become prideful and we fall into the same pit. And, and so I, I think the proper posture when we read the religious leaders is, is not to be sympathetic towards the, towards the behavior of the leaders, but to stay humble, right? That, that we ought to say, hey, you know what? Where am I guilty of this? Uh, where am I guilty of heaping things onto what God says that he doesn't maybe really actually command? And so maybe sympathy is not the right posture to these, Jew, these religious leaders, but, but it is humility that we would that we would say, you know what, Lord, by your grace and by your spirit, I, I need your power to not add to God's word, to not add on top of, to heap what Jesus will later say, to put heavy burdens on myself or on others. And so Jesus is going to also know this about these Jewish leaders. Jesus, Jesus does later show great concern for them. In Matthew 23, verse 37, he calls out to them, and he just says... He basically just summons them again, says, hey, uh, he, he talks about being a, a, a hen, as a, as a hen gathers her chicks, Matthew 23, verse 37, says this, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So Jesus certainly shows a great concern for them. 
He doesn't show just a complete disregard for them. In fact, uh, later Paul will also grieve over the condition of his fellow Jewish men, his fellow Jewish brothers in Romans 9 and 10, and the fact that they've been hardened uh, by their unbelief. But let them also serve as a cautionary tale for us that we too may be susceptible, um, that we too would add onto God's word. And so Jesus, Jesus never sets these men's lives up as exemplary. He never sets these men's lives as exemplary. Over and over again, Jesus is calling them out. Now, in Matthew 23, 3, he does command the disciples to adhere to the content. Uh, that, that as, as When he talks about them sitting on the seat of Moses in Matthew 23, Jesus does say, essentially, insofar as they teach what is right, ascribe your life to their teaching. But when it comes to so much of what they had heaped on top of that, Jesus has no time for. Also, also see that the immediate context of this passage um, where it falls. Uh, it's come after Matthew chapter 14. Uh, Sally read for us uh, a story that was in Matthew chapter 14. So, so we see that the immediate content of this passage falls, falls in uh, around the time that Jesus has just, uh, Jesus' disciples have just distributed food to over 5,000 people uh, from five loaves and two fish. And so I'm just picturing, this is not in the text, but seeing that they're very quickly dealing with food and hands I almost picture the Pharisees like sitting up on a hill far away, watching what's happening as Jesus feeds all these people, just to see if the disciples were going to wash their hands. Is Jesus, are these disciples going to wash their hands? Because just soon after this, the, disciples come to, the, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, why don't your disciples wash their hands? Imagine the Pharisees witnessing something so miraculous and so powerful, and all they come away with is the fact that somebody didn't wash their hands. Now... Now, washing hands, let me just say, uh, in our sixth season here, important. Uh, please wash your hands. Uh, go wash your hands. But, but these, these, uh, these Pharisees were acting as like the germ police. Um, and I, again, we don't know whether or not they witnessed what happened, but it does seem pretty interesting that shortly after this, this where it does make clear the disciples are the ones who distributed the food, why don't your disciples wash their hands? So there's... What, what, what's good to note here is that plenty of scriptures and references exist in the law um, about purification and cleansing for priests and rabbis and even those who are ceremonially unclean. You can go to the Old Testament and you can see over and over again, there's all sorts of places where it talks about the cleansing rituals and all those things that needed to happen before someone could be uh, deemed clean. However, none exist that would have pertained ceremonially to the Israelites in mass. To the common folk of Israel, there's, there's no, there may be one in Leviticus 15, but even that seems like a, more of a ceremonial law, uh, but, but, but really nowhere else do we see a, a, anything about washing hands for all of the Israelites everywhere at all times before they eat. And we see that because Jesus calls what they, uh, what they call him guilty of a, a tradition. He, Jesus doesn't refer to, the, to this as a law. He refers to it as their tradition. And so Jesus just flat out condemns this. And so then we see verse 3. Somebody read verse 3 for me. So it seems that Jesus is, Jesus, is, uh, Jesus is not saying that the tradition of the elders is not only wrong or a mistake, but what Jesus says in this verse is that it blatantly opposes the law of God. Why, why, do your, why do you hold your tradition up to the same level? Or, or why do you, what he says is, why do you break the commandment for the sake of your tradition? Um, so again, this isn't just some over-application. 
Jesus does not say, does not, does not give him the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't say this is some over-application. He says, no, you break the law of God by applying your tradition where it not, ought not be applied and in a way it ought not be applied. And so what he says in trying to, what Jesus says is that in trying to preserve God's law or, or maybe put this way, in not taking God's law serious enough, you've become lawbreakers. You've become uh, breakers of the law. You've disregarded what the law of God says. And so Jesus answers their question here with a question. Isn't that interesting? I, I read somewhere this week that Jesus is recorded asking over 300 questions in the scriptures. I, I didn't count that, um, but, but all that to say, Jesus a- asks a lot of questions. Um, and, and so and in, in answering with a question, it shows that Jesus not only has better answers, but he also asks better questions. <laughs> he just asks better questions than us. Um, as an aside to, to this, on the topic of questions, and I think it's really important for us in our, our moment as a culture um, and, and where we typically get our information and all those things, I, I think what we need to say um, and what we need to understand is that Jesus is not afraid of questions. Jesus is not afraid of questions. But what we see in this text is that it is also true that sincere faith and sincere seeking can be identified in the kinds of questions we're asking. So here's what, here's what I mean by that. Uh, questions in and of themselves are not virtuous. Um, as, as much as our society wants to attach questions and doubt to virtue, that there's something inherently virtuous about doubting, or something, you can read all kinds of books about doubt, and, and those are very important, very important. But, but as much as our society wants to attach inherent virtue to questions and, and doubt, the Pharisees show us that questions aren't necessarily inherently virtuous. That it's the kinds of questions that we're asking. There, there are some questions. Let me just say this as a friend, as a brother, as a teacher. There are some questions and doubts that will reinforce unbelief, that, that will reinforce unbelief and in, 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 in being hardened. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of, of, uh, of, of one of the conversations that I was having with one of, one of our neighbors, and I told him that I was a Christian and that I was a, a, a pastor, and the first thing that he says is, oh, so you eat bacon. Um, and that was, that was the question. That was not a... Now, can God take a question as simple as that and lead it to, to more conversations? Yes, and I'd actually love to tell you more about that guy because I got to see him yesterday and have a, a meeting with him later next week because I think the Lord can actually use those questions and, and use those things. But, but some of our questions and some of our doubts and some of the, the posture that we take when we have those questions and doubts, what the scriptures show us will, will simply reinforce unbelief and can, be, can, can actually be used by the devil um, to, to push you farther and farther away. But let me just say this, church family, there are other questions, and there are seasons of doubt, as we'll see in the scriptures, are moments of doubt that will lead us to the Savior, that will lead us to a Savior who is merciful, who is eager to save and to comfort. And so a lesson that we see here on these questions that these Pharisees are asking just a lesson for us to apply. We don't stand as judges over the scriptures. We don't stand as, as judge, jury. We don't stand as anything up and over the scriptures in our questions. And so maybe this is just like a crash course on, you know what, you have questions on faith. Jesus ain't afraid of those questions. But from what place are you coming at those questions? 
And these men are asking questions, and all it reveals is that they have a hardened heart, and they are settled in their rejection and their disbelief in who God is, is, is what we see. And so sincere questions come from, from a submissive place, what we may call faith-seeking understanding, that we begin in a place of faith. Lord, you are who you say you are. Uh, there is someone outside of me who is more authoritative and more powerful than me. Now, I want to know you. I want to know what your will is. I want to know what your word says. I want to understand what your word says. I want clarity on these certain things. But it starts from a place of faith, seeking understanding. And can God work with the most hardened, stony of hearts? You better believe it. He sure can. But when we are asking questions, when we are engaging our doubts, when we are engaging our areas of unbelief, we do so from a place of humility and a posture of being submissive to someone beyond ourselves. As Jesus shows us, the question of this question from the Pharisees only serves to reveal the depth of their unbelief. And so we see that in verses four through six. If somebody read that. So the very ones attempting to uphold and defend the law, Matthew Henry says, are exposed as lawbreakers. The very ones who are trying to uphold and, and, and intend by their traditions to uphold God's law are actually exposed as lawbreakers by Jesus. So just as the serpent in the garden, I believe it's Genesis chapter 3 says, was more crafty than any other beast, so it seems that the Pharisees were more crafty with the traditions that they had established. Uh, they, were, they were, again, it seems to be that they were instruments in the hands of the enemy, of the enemy of God. Namely, what they had done with the, with the law of God is they had established a way for what, what the text says seems to be that they had established a way for, for them to tell their parents um, that all their resources were soaked up in honoring God and that in their parents' old age, uh, they would not be able to care for them. Because, you know, all the resources that I got now, they're going to the Lord, right? Man, you just talk about holier than now. And, and Jesus just, just doesn't, have, <laughs> Jesus doesn't have time for this. Uh, this is where they fail to take God's law seriously. Um, because uh, this week I spent a lot of time, we even talked on Wednesday, um, trying to figure out, like, why Jesus here starts with the fifth commandment. Um, why, why is this particular issue the one that Jesus points out? Could he not have pegged them with like a, one of the first four? Uh, why, why honoring mother and father? Well, remember that as we've studied through Matthew, Jesus has, has spent a, a great deal of, of time throughout this gospel showing genuine care and compassion for people. Uh, the marginalized, uh, the, the oppressed, the sick and the vulnerable. How does Jesus interact with them? Somebody tell me. How does Jesus interact with those people? Coldly? Welcoming. He welcomes them constantly. He commends their faith. He, 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 he highlights them. He, he brings those who had been outcasts for decades and probably all their lives. He brings those who had to stay hidden. He, 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 he highlights them. He gives them a platform. He says, hey, this person right here who everybody has ostracized forever, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight. I'm going to say great is this person's faith. 
And so he has spent a great deal of time in, his, in this gospel uh, showing compassion and care for people, those who were vulnerable and those who were oppressed, those marginalized and the sick. And here we have another group of vulnerable people, vulnerable people, aging parents. And, and the Pharisees' tradition has created a way to encourage people to let those people suffer, to, to, to let them suffer and let them to die without any provision, and more importantly, for them to disobey the commands of God. The people had relied upon the interpretation of the Pharisees to help them understand the law of God. And, and what Jesus calls them later is blind, he calls them in the very next section is blind guides. He says, you've taught them wrongly because you've elevated your tradition over the command of God. And so Jesus is showing that to, that to truly care about the name and the glory of God is to love other people. He's saying, you want to you understand what the law is about? Well, yes. You, you seem to have this honoring God and this cleansing of yourself down, but you don't love, you're not honoring your, mom, your mother and father. You're not honoring those around you. Put another way, the law of God and the ways of God have, have both vertical and horizontal implications. That even in the way that the Ten Commandments are laid out, we see both vertical implications and how we relate with God, and then we see a whole section of the commandments and how we relate with one another. Um, that, that stealing from one another and bearing false witness against others and, and committing adultery is actually a way that we defame God and that we, uh, that, that, that we dehumanize those around us. And Jesus is saying the, the gospel and even the law of God has both vertical and horizontal implications. And so put even another way, we see in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, someone read that. Just a couple pages over. This, this passage is in response to a Pharisee asking Jesus, help me understand the law. What's, what's the, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's as if Jesus is saying, you're, you think that you're almost there, but you've missed it. You've missed it. Because you think you're honoring God, but in dishonoring your mother and father the way that you've been called to do, you're actually not only dis dishonoring your mother and father, you're dishonoring God. And you're lawbreakers. You're guilty. And so through your tradition, Jesus says, you have made void the word of God. And <laughs> not being serious enough about the word of God, Jesus says, you have made void the word of God. And failing to honor your parents in the name of worshiping God, so you think, you have made void the word of God. Jesus says, you hypocrites. Kind of hits this, this big moment here in verse 7 when he says, you hypocrites. And so he goes on to conclude in this interaction that the Pharisees are the embodiment or the fulfillment of the scathing prophecy of Isaiah in verses 7 through 9, if someone would read that. So Jesus tightens this screw a little bit with the, with the Pharisees and says, not only do you have a scripture problem, a law problem, you have a heart problem. 
the, the problem is, is, in your, is in your heart, in your true affection and in your true love for who God is. Their worship of God, it, what it seems to say in this text is that their worship of God was not based on the terms that God had prescribed in his law, but they were based on their traditions. What was the foundation of what they were doing? The foundation of what they were doing here was their tradition and not the law of God. And it had fully separated them from God. And it had created in them a need for a law keeper. It had created them a need, a need for one who would keep the law for them. And it was in vain that they worshiped God. You know what that means? Their worship was empty. It was, it was empty, their worship of God. They, as we often do, think of worship as what we do towards God. They think, what kind of things do I need to do to properly worship God? They, 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 so often we, we think that worship is initiated by us and dictated by us, that, 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 that this is fundamentally what worship is. Rather, what they miss and what we need to understand today is that what worship fundamentally is is a response of, of God's movement towards us. That our response, that our worship is not what we give to God or what we do for God or what we can provide to God. Rather, worship is, is the only proper response to what God has done for us. And these men had established this way to try to give something to God and Jesus saying, God wants no part of it. God wants no part of it. Because God can't receive that kind of worship from lawbreakers, especially those who are hypocrites. And, but we, as we know, as the gospel tells us, there is a way for our worship to be acceptable to God. Romans 12 talks about acceptable worship. And it does command us, it does give us revelation and worship that God has revealed himself to us and that we then worship in response, as Michael Horton says, are not about our discovering God, but about what he calls divine initiative. The fact that God has been the one, uh, that God has spoken and revealed himself to us out of his divine initiative and that our response is in, is in response to what he has revealed to us in his word and in his son, Jesus. That's, that's what worship is that it's a response to the initiative that God has taken to reach down and to save us. Not that we are working our way to climb the ladder to get to God, but what God has done for us. And so for the Pharisees to have elaborately constructed a way for them and for the people of God uh, to worship God apart from his divine word only revealed that they were transgressors of the law, that they were transgressors and they needed redemption. So the themes repeated throughout this gospel, I, I think there's three recurring themes. There may be more, but three recurring themes in this gospel are response, faith, and worship. Remember, we've talked about that from, from page one, that the, the, the gospel of Matthew is recording how people responded to who Jesus was. From the time that he was a baby, Herod responds by, by decreeing that the census be taken so that he could kill Jesus. That's a response of the news of Jesus. And so in this chapter alone, just in Matthew 15, if you notice, if you, we'll see next week and we'll see the week after that as well. Just, just in this chapter, we have the response and the lack of faith of the Pharisees, but then immediately the response and what Jesus calls the great faith of a Gentile woman. Isn't that amazing that we're going to see, oh woman, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. So the chapter before Matthew 14 shows us 
the response of the disciples based on the power of Jesus contrasted with the Pharisees' response here based on what they had seen. And so church, just as we conclude this, God's initiative towards us, the divine initiative to send a redeemer, to send a savior, because we too are lawbreakers, right? We too are guilty of breaking God's law. So his initiative, his divine initiative, and the power of God call for a response of worship in believers. And the grand display of the power and the divine initiative of God and the love that he has for his church, the grand display of that is in the sending of his son Jesus to die and to be raised in power. And our worship is in response to that not in what we offer to God, but what God has done in his divine initiative towards us and our response to what Christ has done on our behalf. And praise God, we get to see that every single Sunday when we take communion. That we come, we come empty-handed. Literally, it's almost like a picture of this divine initiative. I almost don't even want us to walk to the table, right? (laughs) Because even walking to the table makes it feel like that Yeah, we're doing something. And yes, there is faith required. God calls us to faith. But it is the divine initiative of God for us to come empty-handed and for us to be um, assured that when we receive the the juice and the cracker or the wine, you know, wherever you're, if you're not Baptist, the wine, um, and and the, the, the cracker and the elements and to be assured in that moment of the divine initiative of God and sending of his son, so that we may have life and we have made peace with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, your word. Um, thank you for, the, again, the sufficiency of your word and the way that um, it instructs and it addresses all kinds of things in us. Um, that, that when we, when we uh, hear and believe certain things that, that sound good and sound right and sound almost affirming to us, that, Lord, your word always brings us back. Uh, to what is true um, in an objective way, uh, in a way that, that uh, we can actually find rest. And as, as 1 John says, that the commandments of God are not burdensome. Um, and so, Lord, may we put off these, uh, again, these things that we've believed that, um, that, that what you are after in us is not what's best for us. And that we would always see um, that what you are after Um, in us and doing in us is what is best for us. Um, And we pray, Lord, that you would just help us to see your word clearly, Um, help us to apply your word clearly um, to our lives. May may we not be so arrogant and prideful to think that that, that we're not susceptible to adding to your word, um, to adding things that, that tie up heavy burdens on ourselves and on other people. May we see, Lord, that um, you have Uh, worked through your son Jesus, um, and that his works, that his life, that his righteousness um, is is all that we are able to boast in, um, is in Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.